Good evening. Again, I just want to express our appreciation for the invitation to be here this week. We've been looking forward to it for a long time. Hope you have too, and I hope that uh, all the anticipation that we've had doesn't disappoint as we go through our week together. Uh, So I mentioned, and you've seen in the invitations and the announcements for this meeting, that the topic is the tipping point, which really the idea I had in mind there is this concept that we are involved in a spiritual warfare, one in which we are uh, in, a, in a precarious position with, with spiritual forces wrestling for our souls. We know very well that Satan is alive, that he's active, that Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. And he is greatly effective in his work in convincing people that sin is a good route to go and that it's better than anything God offers. On the other hand, we have the, the compassionate pleading cry, the invitation of our Lord that says, come unto me, you who are weak and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. And we see these spiritual forces that are at play in the world. And while we can't see them with our physical eyes, we feel the effects of it. And it's very real to us, especially as those of us who are spiritually minded, who are, as we'd say, religious people, people that are concerned with their eternal welfare. And so it's along those lines that we get into our lesson this evening. As we've looked at today, this idea of postmodernism, that my truth will set me free. And that's going to be sort of what launches us into our final lesson today. And then tomorrow we're going to take a different tack. And we're going to look at some case studies of churches in the first century, problems they were dealing with, and biblical, scriptural, spiritual solutions that were given to them to overcome those promise, or those problems as well as the warnings given to them if they stay in those problems. I hope you'll make plans to be back the rest of the week. And so when we turn our attention, as we've looked at this morning, what postmodernism is in a nutshell, that it's this no absolute truth idea that whatever I believe, I I choose to believe that's personal to me and it's personal to you and we can agree to disagree. We've seen how it affects the home. And how this this reversal of authority and rejection of biblical authority has caused so many problems in our homes and with our children and in our marriages. You know, we don't have to look very far to see this. And we see it out in the world around us. We see it even among the church. But I want us to turn our attention, like I told all you uh, young adults, it's probably better than guys and girls. I told you that we would be talking specifically for you. The rest of you guys need to stay put. Don't get up just yet. But we're going we're gonna to talk about some things that once we speak about them, they'll be familiar to us. And we'll say, yeah, I, I can see that. And we can make some biblical applications on how to deal with these problems that we face in society. How do we face these challenges? How do we fight this spiritual warfare where we're, we seem to be fighting a losing battle from time to time? And there seems to be an overwhelming force of worldliness and skepticism all around us. How do we deal with that and and come out successful in the end? We can be successful. As Jesus said, we read this morning, the truth, you can know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's success. And of course, achieving that eternal goal, that gift of God, the salvation of our souls, that is success. And so how is this way of thinking affecting young people today? Well, let's begin by taking a, a look at the fact that over the course of time, uh, the values in society shifted. And we, as we mentioned this morning in the home, there used to be what was somewhat considered Bible-based values as to how the home is, is built and what it's built around and how children are raised and how husband and wife relate to one another. This used to be more than just in the home, though. It seems as though there might have been a larger percentage of people that were spiritually minded, 
that if you were to pull them might say that, yes, the Bible is an important book that has authority and, and tells us good things to do and right ways to live. And it has some eternal import on our souls. We might have gotten more uh, a higher percentage back then than we do today. I, I saw this uh, interesting article that talked about this, this shift in the, just the principles of people. And it talked about uh, this idea of self-exaltation that is so prevalent today. Self-exaltation where it's all about me. I want to feel good about who I am. And I want to make sure that I'm confident in myself all the time so that nobody can tell me anything. In this survey that was done, it gave a list of ten characteristics that people in colonial times thought were important. What are the most important ten characteristics in colonial times? Uh, Notice these with me. Hard work. Hard work was very important to people in colonial times. Civic duty. Being a good citizen in the world around you. Humility. Moderation. Family. Faith. Rule of law. Frugality. Simplicity. And if we're not careful, we might think that we're talking about some Bible-based, uh, some Bible-based items there. Well, they are Bible-based. All of these good things that promote others more than self, these are Bible-based principles. But what do we have today? We interview people and talk about what's the ten most important characteristics to you And we see a society that's quite the opposite. We value comfort. We value having experiences in life. Or being able to personally express myself. We value happiness, independence, entitlement, control, acceptance of all, and freedom. Now, while not all of those are bad things, we can definitely see a contrast in how things were only a couple of hundred years ago and how a shift has changed from being people who look out for other people, who are more concerned with the well-being of others, holding to biblical principles in that way, to a community and a society in which we all stand alone and we don't really care about other people all that much. They're not as important as I am after all. And we see that shift in basic principles away from Bible-based things to worldly things. Go with me to Philippians chapter 2. We cited this this morning, but we didn't turn and read it. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Paul here writing to the church at Philippi, he gives them some instructions and he says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Pay attention to those words again. Don't do anything that is motivated by rivalry, That is this competition, well, they got up and I've got to get over them and I've got to do better than them. We're having this competition or conceit. Maybe I've been embarrassed and I'm I'm ashamed of that. Well, now I've got to go back and get them because I don't want anybody to hurt my pride. He says, don't do anything that's driven by that. But he says, in humility, that is lowering the opinion of yourself, count others as more significant, more important than yourselves. And he says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. And the beautiful thing about that, that commandment is that if you're looking out for my best interest and I'm looking out for your best interest, well, everybody's going to be taken care of if we're all doing what we should be doing. We, we feel that sense of family where the family cares for one another. We don't have to worry. Well, if I don't take care of me, nobody will. Because as the Lord's people, as the Lord's family, we know that we should be caring for each other and we shouldn't worry that I'm going to be left out. Because that's... That's what the Bible has taught us on how to put others above ourselves. We see that shift. When we talk about shifting, we need to pay attention to uh, passages like Jeremiah chapter 6. 
Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16 through 19. Familiar passage to you, I'm sure. Jeremiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 16. The weeping prophet prophesying for the Lord says this. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. I set watchmen over you saying, pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not pay attention. Therefore, hear, O nations, and know, O congregation, what will happen to them. Hear, O earth, behold, I am bringing disaster upon this people, the fruit of their devices, because they have not paid attention to my words. And as for my law, they have rejected it. You know, it's not hard when you start to think about it. It's not hard to make the prophets relevant, is it? Maybe not like Nahum. There's a lot of blood and gore in that one. But when you look at the situation in Jeremiah's lifetime and you see the world around him, the collapse of the people of God, this this religious, spiritual and physical nation. And he looks around and he says, God says, go back to the law. Well, no, we're not going to do that. We're rejecting that. Walk this good way. No, we're not going to walk that good way. Listen to the alerts and the alarms. No, we're going to plug our ears and not listen to that. You know, Isaiah said the same thing. And Jesus quoted that, that they would be deaf and blind, but it's a willful deafness and blindness. We need to be careful. We need to seek the old paths. That's not something that's outdated and fuddy-duddy. That's not something that is boring and not modern enough that is relevant even today. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the word of God is alive and that it is active, not just in the first century, but even today. Do you think that the word of God is alive and that it's active, that it's a living document that can change people's lives today? Absolutely it is. Seek the old paths. Don't be caught away, especially young people. Don't be caught away by the novelty. Don't be caught away by the new and the flashy and the glamorous and the appealing. Because a lot of times the new wears off pretty quickly and you're left with something that's sort of useless. Go the tried and true way. Follow the word of God. See what's there. See the good way to go. And so we ask the question, are we to agree to disagree in the world we live in? When we go to college, when we go to school, when we go to the workplace, are we supposed to be as representatives of God, people who just agree to disagree? You think the way you want to think. I'll think the way I want to think. And that's just that. Or should we be people who have a reasonable faith that is built on solid evidence? I tend to think it should be that. Go with me to Romans chapter 1. We're going to consider a few passages in Romans chapter 1. Really verse 18 through the rest of the chapter there. Paul gives this dissertation on what society looks like that has abandoned godly principles. And he shows us there what happens to a society that determines that the way God has organized things is no longer useful to me. Some things you'll be faced with. We mentioned evolution this morning, and that's still something that we need to be ready to address. What about the idea of creationism and evolution? Is this something where our responsibility as Christians is to say, well... Let's just agree to disagree. Or perhaps this is something that is, is intertwined and maybe I can find a way to believe in both of those things. I feel like that's the way that things are going. That we're saying, well, you can believe one of these things 
You can believe both of these things. You can believe neither one of these things. And that's fine. Lauren's going to laugh when I say this, but I heard the comment several times when we were in Georgia from one of our elders. He said, when it comes to a situation of right and wrong, either you can be right and I can be wrong. And he would say, the one I like better is I would be right and you would be wrong, or we could both be wrong. There is no fourth option that says we're both right. Because if, it's, if it contradicts one another, it's impossible. We can't believe both in creationism, that God created the heavens and the earth, as it says in Genesis 1.1, and also believe that we somehow transformed from this single-celled organism into a walking, thinking individual today. Look in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Such a powerful passage. Look at verse 21. Although they knew God... From looking at the world around them, they knew God. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. That could be a tagline for postmodernism. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. That's what happens when we turn from godly principles. We say, well, I don't see the wisdom in what God has said. It doesn't matter. What God said is full of wisdom, and it yields a better life. We can't have one or the other. It's got to be creation. Uh, we, we can't have a mixture of both. We can't agree to disagree on these things. You'll be faced with people who talk about this and who challenge you and have good scientific evidence that they think is going to prove once and for all that we weren't created. There was this big bang, and here we are. Well, let's move on. What about human biology? What about human biology and the design of the human body and the natural way that a body works? Consider with me in the following verses. Romans 1, verse 26. It says, For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Do you believe that? Or are you of the inclination to believe Genesis 5, 1 and 2, that it's not just do whatever you want, it's your body, make your own choices, but there is a way that God has designed us to function and to act in life. In Genesis 5, it says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. What did he make? He made man and, man and woman, male and female. And he put them together. And he made them unique so that they could have relationships together and, and function in the world. But when we go against that, when we, when we uh, try to question the human natural design, because after all, the Bible is so outdated. You can't possibly still believe what the Bible teaches about things like homosexuality or sexual purity or relationships with other people. No, we need to be tolerant of that. Can we, can we agree to disagree? Young people, can we agree to disagree? Or do we need to take a firm stand for what is right? It's not going to be easy. But remember what the, the writer of Romans has said to us here. They have exchanged what is natural because they have willfully ignored God. 
Moving on, what about morality? What about morals? There's a, a sense of hypocrisy here. When you look at the world and try to determine what is moral, what is good, what is right, what is wrong. We see a world that decries biblical standards of morality. From the streets we hear people say, no, that is so oppressive to believe that way anymore. We need to be new and we need to be up to date and we need to be tolerant and get with the times. But at the other, we see people who are talking down about Bible morality, but on the other hand, they are promoting and encouraging people to sow their wild oats. They're promoting worldliness as though that is good. It's a self-serving lifestyle. That's what you ought to do. You ought to go out and get what's yours and have fun while you're doing it. That's not what the Bible teaches. And we see the, the irony there, the hypocrisy there. No, you can't tell me what's good, but I'm going to tell you what's good and what you have to accept. Are we going to agree to disagree? Are we going to stand up for what's right? Stand up for what's true, what's godly? So how are these things affecting our young people? What are the problems that are coming about because our young people are, are talking to people and being around people who are bringing about this false wisdom that claims to be wise but is foolish? Well, number one, people are becoming unsure about what's right or wrong. What's right or wrong? Go with me to Psalm 119. We read this just a moment ago, but I love it. I love it so much. Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? What a great question. Wonderful question. How can a young man keep his way pure? The answer, by guarding it, protecting it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And so we see people who are wondering, what's right? What's good? What's my responsibility here? What am I supposed to say to these people? And as older people, as parents, as grandparents, aunts and uncles, the elders, the deacons, the preachers, the moms and dads who are concerned with these young people, our job is to remind them that if you want to keep your heart pure, you've got to protect it according to the word of God. You've got to study. You've got to be convinced why you believe what you believe. You've got to look at the evidence. You've got to come to those understandings yourself. But we also see uh, in the world around us, because of this postmodern idea, that it's having this effect where truth is being questioned. We've talked about that a lot today. But truth is being questioned. But if you give an answer to any questions, it's met with skepticism. There's no trust there. Go with me to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. By this point, Jesus has had the Last Supper with his disciples. He's had the discourse with them after dinner. He has washed their feet. He has prayed in the garden. And he has been taken through trials. And he is with Pilate. And in John chapter 18, verse 36 through 38. Jesus answered, Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. And Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Now, this next statement. Is, is viewed from different ways. Some people take this next statement and they say, wow, 
What a deep, intellectual question. I view it more as a cop-out. Pilate says to him, what is truth? Who can know what's right or wrong? You say you're coming to bear witness to the truth. What does that even mean? Because obviously you've done something wrong, so your truth isn't what they wanted to hear. And I don't like what they're having to say either. It's this whole big thing. What is truth? We need to understand that when people ask questions skeptically, that it doesn't mean that they're intellectual. Just because somebody asks a question and says, well, what is truth? It doesn't mean that they're a scholar. If we have an answer for something, what is truth? Well, let me tell you what truth is. Well, that's impolite. You can't talk to people that way. You can't tell them the answer to their question. And we see that so often. And I've seen it in in Facebook discourses that go all over the place. And you probably have too. In college discussions, even when I was in school. And and on through the years, we see people who, who think that if they just keep asking questions, that they're being really smart about it. The only way you get more intelligent by asking questions is if you consider the answers you're given. And if you compare that to evidence that is presented to you and you make determinations. If you're in a courtroom, you present evidence. If you're an attorney, you present evidence that the jury considers. They don't look at that evidence and say, well, who can tell? Who can even tell? What's it really even mean? They look at that evidence. They say, this is valuable to the the question we're trying to answer. This is pertinent to what we're trying to answer. Some of the things they dismiss. That's not relevant. That doesn't help us. But they look at the evidence and they make the best decision they can based on that evidence. That's what we are as Christians. If you want to be an intellectual type person, that's that's wonderful. That's good. Always learn. That's that's wonderful. Spend your time in the in the Word of God mostly. But if you ask questions, consider the evidence and get the answers you need. Truth is real. Or knowledge is impossible. If Pilate says, what is truth? And Jesus says, I don't know. I was just sort of puffing up a little bit. I don't know what truth is. Then, then the, whole, the whole life of Christ would have been meaningless. The whole Bible would be meaningless because there'd be no point to it at that time. So we've seen what it's doing to young people and how it can lose a, a respect for the word of God. A note here. This doesn't mean that our young people are discounting the Bible altogether. Young people aren't throwing their Bibles in the trash can. Or deleting the Bible app off their phones. They're not getting rid of it altogether. But they're being, being tempted to blend it with the worldly things they are learning. To temper it a little bit with a little bit of worldliness. So that it's a little more palatable. So it doesn't offend my, my friends and my, my co-workers or my teachers quite as much. And it doesn't mean that I have to change all that much. We remember from the passage in Romans 1 that once we decide we're going to ignore the principles of God, we have stepped into the realm of foolishness. And there's no value to that. We have to have a respect for the word of God. If not, then anything goes and it's a free-for-all. So let's talk as we we make some applications to our lesson tonight and our series today before we look at some case studies for the rest of the week. What do we do about this? People who are concerned with the young people or, or young people yourselves, what do we do about this? I like what the proverb writer says, Proverbs twenty three twenty three. He says, buy the truth and do not sell it. Pulls no punches there. He says the most important thing you can do in life is find out what's true. 
Jesus said he came to bear witness of the truth. Pilate said, what is truth? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's the truth. And we need to buy that truth and we need to get it and we need to spend all of our efforts attaining that and and mining through the word of God on a daily basis and talking with other people and learning from them uh, that what they can share with us about the word of God. And once we've got that, never let it go. Never exchange it for anything else. Don't save it up for a rainy day just so you can have a more comfortable life later. Use it and keep it with you. Do not sell it. Another thing we can do once we value truth and we prioritize a search for truth and, and considering that truth and making it real to us as parents, as older people. Teach your children. Teach Bible class students. Teach them what to, what to believe, what to think. But not just that. Teach them how to think. Teach them how to analyze the evidence. Growing up, it's too easy to think that if you want to be a Christian, there's five things you've got to do. Right? Just five simple steps for salvation. See where I'm going with that? And while that's not wrong, that doesn't really teach anybody how to think about the message of salvation. We need that. We need to be reminded that we need to confess that Jesus is the Lord of my life. And my life must reflect that through a willing submissiveness to his instruction. We need to believe in the truth and hear it constantly, either with our ears or with our eyes. We need to be filling our minds and our hearts with the word of God. We need to constantly remember that repentance is a part of who we are as, as the Lord's people. As we walk in the light, sometimes we stumble in sin, but God is faithful and just to forgive us if we come back to him. We'll sin. We need to constantly be reminded to repent. And once we've got that message and we understand what baptism is, it's not just the, the final step so that you can walk through. It's, it's the culmination of the gospel message. Like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, this is the first importance, right? I've received, I delivered to you this that was delivered me as a first importance that Christ died, that he was buried and he raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures. And he appeared to many and he ascended to heaven. You know, when I learn about that and I understand what Jesus did, then baptism makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? To be cleansed from my sins. To have that unique relationship with Jesus. To be, to be raised to walk a new life that's different from that old one in futility I had been walking. But we need to teach people how to think about the Bible. Not just what to think. We don't force feed it to them and make sure they've got it by rote. There's a time and a place for that. But we've got to be raising children who know how to think and analyze evidence. The reason is, is because if they get to college... And they're presented with evidence, but they've never been trained how to throw out the bad evidence. They might be tempted to believe it. They might come home and they say, Mom, Dad, what these people are saying, that makes a lot of sense. You know, I've got some questions. I've got some doubts. Now, having doubts in and of itself is not the end of the world. We can grow through our doubts. And, but that's because we come back and get the answers to our questions. And that being the case, we need to use our mind to serve and to love God. Service to Christ is not just a physical, uh, a physical statement. It's not simply making sure we check off our prayer box for the day or making sure that we sing when we're at church or that we take the Lord's Supper or give back to the contribution, that we read our Bible every day, check, check, check. But it's about using our mind. It's about becoming like Christ. If we're not becoming more like Christ, If day by day we're not a little bit more like the image of the sun, 
Well, then we need to, t- uh, to stop and, and take an account of what we're doing. Are we doing what it takes to fill up and to grow in the, the nurture and admonition of the Lord? We need to examine the evidence. It holds up. We use our minds to think about that, and it's going to make sense. And I want to end with Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 14. This middle section of Ephesians 4, it really comes to a head in verses 15 and 16, where it says the whole point of church leadership and church edification and the building up of the saints is so that we will mature as Christians, so that we will grow and be better in the future than we were yesterday. That's the whole purpose of what God has put in our lives uh, so that we can grow thereby. It's so that we will grow. In verse 14, he says, we need to, from verse 13, we grow to mature manhood, the measure of the stature of fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So he says there, don't be a child anymore. When you first come to know Christ, when you first study the Word of God, you're going to be a child. You're going to, you're going to stumble and fall. You'll have a lot of questions, and that's good. But if you stay a baby for the rest of your life, there's a problem. Paul says we need to be growing up. Adults, we need to be grown-up Christians. Young people, you need to, to learn and to practice being a grown-up Christian. Growing not to, to be prideful of ourselves, but growing to, to meet the stature, the fullness of Christ, the Son of God. That's what it's all about. How do we do that, though? How do we learn to stand firm? Well, it requires that we set some deep roots. And the thing about roots is that that little tree that's just starting to grow, when the storm comes along, it doesn't have very deep roots. But you know what? 30 years from now, if that tree has been cared for and maintained, it's going to have some deep roots. You're not going to worry when the wind blows. And so what I'm saying is that it's never too early to start sowing the seed and causing those roots to start growing. The later you wait, the harder it's going to be. But it's our job to teach and to encourage and to care for the young souls diligently so that every single one of us, like this passage in Ephesians 4, may no longer be children, but we may grow up to mature manhood, to adulthood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So the things that we've talked about today, this idea of postmodernism, if you remember that word or not, that's okay. But we know this way of thinking is dangerous and that it is something that a lot of people are utilizing, a thought process that they use. The view of the world is that there's no truth. There's nothing absolute. Who can know? But if we allow ourselves to think that way, it degrades our view of the word of God. It takes the word of God and it makes it less than special. It makes it less holy. And this is a subversive thought process that's going to cause us to, to potentially lose uh, our young people if we're not careful. So we need to be on the alert. We need to be helping and encouraging. And again, teaching the Bible as authoritative, as the Word of God, from the mind of God, revealed to us by the hands of men through the work of the Holy Spirit, given to us for the salvation of our souls and the maturing into the image of Christ. We mentioned this morning about the father that stands with his arms outstretched. Even when we wonder, even when we doubt from time to time, do you think the prodigal son doubted 
whether his father would still love him? Of course he did. He said, I'm just going to go back and maybe I can sleep in the servants' quarters and that'll be fine. He doubted his father's love, but he came back and his father showed him the truth. Come back to the word. See the truth that your father loves you, that he wants to save you from your sins and wants to help you get to heaven in the end. If that appeals to you, and I hope it does, I ask you tonight, can we help you to make your life right with God? If we can, come right now while we stand and sing.